All right, today's message is uh, Make Ready the Way of the Lord, and we are in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So if you are able, I'd ask you to stand uh, together this morning as we uh, read God's Word. Uh, That will be on the screen for you, but I'd always encourage you uh, to grab a Bible and and read through it uh, as well. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be straight and the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. You may be seated. So if you were with us last week, we we covered the last part of chapter 2, where we've got that great story of Jesus uh, in the temple, uh, exchanging ideas and and teaching and and, and becoming lost. Um, And that was a a great story. But as we shift into chapter 3, we jump forward about 18 years. Uh, so from the first, basically, uh, first full two chapters, we see uh, before birth and, and the birth narrative. And at the very end of chapter two, we skipped ahead 12 years. And as we get into chapter three here, about 18 more years have jumped. So about 30 years total uh, compared to where Luke kicked off in chapter one. Uh, where we learned about the births uh, of John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, just again, for, for context, I've shown uh, parts of these in various messages. For, for me, it helps anchor the setting of the story. Where are we? What are we talking about? On the left there, this would have been uh, where we see the world. Uh, essentially, this was the, the Roman Empire through the end of the first century AD. Uh, And then on the right there, you see this zoomed-in portion of the predominant area that we see take place uh, in the Gospels or in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, You might see some, uh, this is a little bit different version than I've shown the last couple weeks where I showed the the trail that they would have taken from uh, Nazareth to Jerusalem and Beth. uh, Bethlehem, uh, but you'll see Philip, Antipas, Ar- Ar- Archelaus. Uh, again, those are names that we referenced here, uh, but you can see the Sea of Galilee at the top, the Dead Sea at the bottom, the Jordan River that, that runs to it, uh, and, and various, uh, and this shows a little bit of the elevation as well. Um, zoomed in a little bit more, uh, don't pay too much attention to the labels that are there, but look at the area that is outlined 
Uh, this would have been what was considered the Judean wilderness, the, the topic that we're talking about today, as well as the same uh, general area when we get to the temptation of Jesus when he went to the wilderness. This would have been uh, the area in which uh, he was located. I've got a few more pictures uh, and a point a little bit later on for that as well. Um, several points in these six verses. Uh, the first one is that this is anchored in history. This is anchored in history. So as a whole, verses one through six set the stage for John the Baptist's prophetic call. And we see sort of what we might refer to as this A-list of earthly powers, right? We, we get an emperor, a governor, three tetrarchs, and then we get two high priests. Uh, and together they represent the, the rulers of the known world or, or the regional world uh, that Jesus and John the Baptist would have been doing their ministry in. And this represents the religious, political, and, and economic complex, if you will, that stands at the heart of Jerusalem as the main city. And so collectively, they hold all the authority, wealth, military, uh, and ancestry, and it's all under their command. Simply pointing out those names there, you've got the five uh, Gentile rulers, and then the last two, Annas and Caiaphas. Those names might be familiar for later on in Jesus's life. All uh, those are the high priests. And so what we see here is Luke further setting the stage. We've talked about this previously. Uh, yes, he's telling a story, but he's telling it accurately uh, and in a historical way, maybe not in the way that you and I might read a modern history book, uh, but it's his intention to do this with accuracy and encompass all of the detail that he can. It's important for us to understand that this is uh, real places with real people, okay? It's not just a story. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. There, there is a very specific reason that Luke uses this at the beginning of chapter 3, and it's to anchor it in history. Real people real places, these things happened, and they can be verified in extra-biblical accounts, not just what some guy says in a gospel somewhere. So this is a real thing. Uh, third, that it involved both Gentile and Jew, both Gentile and Jew, and that's designed to let us know that it's really encompassing uh, every power structure that would have existed during this time. And so a common question that comes up is, like, why now? It, it, why, why at this point in history uh, did God decide to break in and, and, and make this happen? And there's a, a, a quote from uh, John MacArthur that I think that does a, a very good job summarizing this uh, better than I can in my own words. So he says this, as the curtain rose on the ministries of John and Jesus, Israel was shrouded in deep darkness. It was the bleakest of times politically. Uh, the nation chafed under the oppressive rule of, of pagan idolaters, Rome. Israel, uh, God's covenant nation, was now part of a minor province in a backwater region of the mighty Roman Empire. It was also the darkest of times spiritually, spiritually. 
The Jewish people were crushed under the heavy burden of an apostate, legalistic, hypocritical religion dominated by corrupt, wicked spiritual leaders. Israel had not realized the promises of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. They possessed neither the land promised by the former nor the kingdom promised by the latter. You'll recall we talked about these covenants uh, several weeks back. Engulfed in legalism, hypocrisy, and external ritual, the nation also failed to experience the new covenant blessings promised in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37. I think that does a great job uh, capturing what what the sense of things were at this time. And so it seems like the perfect time for God to break in and do something. Uh, We've talked about this previously, but it had been about 400, 450 years since there was a prophet. We, We see in a moment here, we'll talk about John. John would be considered the last prophet of the Old Testament. But it had been about 450 years Uh, since we saw engagement uh, like that. Um, And so what general, or uh, kind of uh, summarizing what we see in this text is is this world to which God sends the Messiah and and John the Baptist, and it's held captive, right, by these different earthly forms of domination and influence, And it's represented in this gospel by these various men coming from these different regions and who they represent. But as we move forward in the text, uh, we notice very quickly that the word of God doesn't come to these high powers or where you might expect it, Jerusalem, Rome, or whatever. Um, Remember, we've talked about Luke likes to set things in contrast. What we see is that the word comes to this guy out in the middle of the wilderness, those places that I showed you on the map. And that's the second point for today, that the word of God came to John. And so if we we see that here as uh, verse 2 closes, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. But if we look at that, a paragraph sort of as a whole, what Luke is introducing here is sort of a resume that highlights how important his role is and his role as a prophet. Um, this, what this amounts to essentially is sort of a time stamp um, with the rulers and the time frame and who and what and when, uh, giving locations and, and sort of John's pedigree, if you will, establishing him as a prophet. Now, you may or may not know this, but this is not an uncommon thing that we see in Old Testament prophets. Uh, For instance, Ezekiel 1, verses 2 and 3, this should sound familiar as I I read it if you inserted uh, John the Baptist's name and some other things. On the fifth day of the month, uh, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to the priest Ezekiel, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar, and the hand of the Lord was on him there. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And we see that in, in several different places. Jeremiah, Hosea, and Isaiah have it as well. And so what we see then is 
is that he hails from uh, ancestry on both sides. We, we read that earlier in chapter 1. Uh, Zechariah, his father, was a priest that was part of the rotations that took care of things at the temple uh, where that meeting with the angel occurred. And his mother, Elizabeth, uh, descended from the line of priests uh, with Aaron, so going all the way back to the beginning of the priesthood in the Old Testament. And so John is very much following the path here. What we see next in that sentence, in that, uh, the end of verse 2, is uh, the wilderness. The wilderness. Now, this is a familiar word for us, especially if we know our Old Testament history. Uh, we find that in the Exodus. Uh, the wilderness in, in biblical writings often represents vulnerability and uncertainty. They're out in the middle of nowhere in the darkness, without food, water. None of these things are there uh, unless God provides them. And so in Luke, if we looked at the word wilderness throughout the Gospel of Luke, uh, we'll see a couple of different things. We'll see that the wilderness is a place of testing and hunger. Uh, we see that it's sometimes danger or destruction, uh, and then also to be lost and then be found. And so what we see with the wilderness uh, here, uh, as well as sort of an application for you and I, is that it's a place of vulnerability and danger. Vulnerability and danger. And it's in those settings that God often appears uh, in, in, a, in a very miraculous way. Obviously, we saw that in the Exodus account, uh, and we see that in, in many other forms as well. For us in our faith journeys, or many times it's leading up to coming to faith in Christ, once we learn a little bit of the sort of Christianese or vernacular, we'll look back and say, I was in a place of the wilderness. You guys heard or said this about yourselves? Or maybe at a point in your faith where uh, your faith diminishes for one reason or another, you might say that you're wandering through the wilderness. Same sort of concept here. You're in a place of isolation, a place of darkness. And this, for John the Baptist, the isolation was an important part. If we go back to the beginning where it's talking about all of these fancy people, by John's isolation, he wasn't impacted or affected by the happenings in Jerusalem or the greater Roman Empire. So this wasn't impacting him. I go back to the first things that we talked about where I talked about uh, the syncretism. Uh, this was pervasive in this time as well, these, these multiple religions uh, coming in and infecting what was there, what was supposed to be right and true. And because of John's isolation, because of John's time in the wilderness, he was removed and, and really saved from that. And so he's growing up in the word, oh, right and true. And of course, for those of you that were with us earlier, oh, we know that the Holy Spirit uh, has been on him since he was in the womb. A couple pictures. You may or may not be familiar with what this looks like. Uh, I think I have three or four pictures in here of the Judean wilderness. Uh, we see the word desert, and I think that we probably think of like, I, I don't know, 
what, you know, rolling sand and stuff like that. That's not what this area is like. Um, it, it, it's, so when you, when you hear uh, they went up from uh, Galilee to Jerusalem, these are the kinds of areas and places that they're traversing. Um, when, you, when we read uh, the story about the Good Samaritan, it's not hard to picture being in a ravine like this with nowhere to turn where bad things can happen. And so these are pictures of what the Judean wilderness would have looked like. Uh, we close there in that verse with the word of God, the word of God. Now, I think what we're most familiar with, especially if we know our New Testament well, is the word logos when we see word. Uh, Jesus is the logos, uh, the word of God. That's not the word that's used here in this verse. Rather, it's the word rima, rema, and that means uh, not the literal word of God uh, like we see it in most other places Paul would use. And of course, Jesus, this, this word is used as a call to John's prophetic ministry, okay? A call to John's prophetic ministry. This is the word of God, like all the other Old Testament uh, prophets, the word of God came to John uh, and he is the last Old Testament prophet. Uh, just a couple things about this. Um, it's not uncommon for us to hear people say, even pastors say, that I got a word from God. Uh, you've heard this. Um, I think I've said this from the stage once before. I, I was tempted at one point in the past to, to test this uh, hypothesis of mine. I was going to write the same exact sermon, except for one sermon at the beginning of it, I was going to say, I got a word from God this morning, and thus. What I've noticed is that gets a lot more leaning in. Ooh, you've got a word from God. You must be special. That must be special as opposed to just doing it sort of the normal way. Um, this gets into a whole nother, uh, a ball of wax here. Uh, I don't personally believe, nor will you hear me teach from the stage that we're still actively getting prophetic words from God today. Uh, if I wanna hear God speak, I read my Bible. Further, if I want to hear God speak out loud, I read it out loud, okay? I, I know that's a little bit facetious, but um, that's, that's my perspective on it. Uh, so this is a special thing with a special person that was anointed by God and the call of God to be the last prophet of the Old Testament. Of course, this is making ready the way of the Lord, making ready the way of the Lord. This whole purpose, this is the whole purpose of John's uh, prophetic calling. And it's not just to prepare the way of the Lord, it's also to prepare the people uh, to receive the Lord, for the people to receive the Lord. And we learned that back in Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. And specifically, that's through 
a repentance for the forgiveness of sin we saw in that earlier passage. Uh, here's this passage that we're talking about. And he came into the district all around the Jordan. So remember that area that I showed you with the Jordan River sort of flanking its east side, uh, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And I, for those of you that are regular, you're going to know this, but for those that aren't, uh, the capitalized letters here coincide with the Bibles that we have in our seats. Uh, anytime we see capitalized letter, it's a direct quote from the Old Testament. This particular quote comes from Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so we see John the Baptist is this voice crying in the wilderness. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be straight and the roads, the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God couple points here. As I said, that is a direct quote from Isaiah 40, if you want to go look at that. A uh, second thing, um, this for Luke's audience, and we see this happen over and over and over uh, through Jesus's ministry, uh, this would have been what we would call nowadays a trigger warning uh, for uh, modern or Jews back then, for, for specifically here for two reasons. Uh, John's use of the word baptism, and then at the end of the passage, all flesh. Baptism was something that existed in Old Testament Judaism, uh, and really it existed in a similar form and fashion in which we would hold to it today, uh, but their purpose for baptism was for Gentiles that were converting to Judaism, okay? And they said that those Gentiles were unclean, and so two primary things needed to happen. One, they needed to be circumcised, which was a sign of the covenant, and two, they needed to be baptized or, or made clean. And so in the Jordan or other places, just like we would do, they would literally dunk them and wash them clean, now, the trigger part here for the Jews of this time would have been the fact that baptism was only for Gentiles, not for Jews. And so to be hearing this as a Jew in this time frame that, hey, even though you're part of the covenant, that's not good enough, you need to be baptized, was basically saying you're the same as a Gentile. Okay, now we might not think much of that 2,000 years later, but that would have been absolutely appalling to Jews at that time. They were uh, different and distinct and separate from the Gentiles. And so that, that's further carried on as we get to the end of the passage and we see that all flesh will receive the salvation of the Lord. Again, it's not just pointing out or, or picking out the Jews as the set-apart nation. It's encompassing the Gentiles as well, that salvation is available uh, for all. There you see there the baptism and then the all flesh. Um, let say a few more things about that. Uh, as we uh, talked about a little bit already, 
the, the truth is, is that Israel at this time was religiously bankrupt, uh, and, and they desperately needed this call from John uh, to repentance. Uh, the Jewish people weren't cured over time. We see so much idolatry that just continued to persist and continued to persist. And for those that were with us as we studied Ezra and Nehemiah, we, we know that they were uh, kicked out of, of Judea and, and sent packing to Babylon and other places. And this was because of the persistent idolatry and, and, and not uh, matching up with God's standards. And so over time, as they were away, uh, the idolatry went down, but then there's this weird legalism thing that, that started to uh, persist and become part of their new religion, this, this legalism. So they could gain a right relationship with God by essentially saying, we're going to do it with our own efforts. If I, if I hit these standards consistently, if I do these things. What we see, though, in the New Testament, Jesus responds to this as well, is that this is Paul in, in Romans 2. Uh, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that uh, which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And so what we see with the Jews at the time is this legalism crept in, and 600 plus little rules and laws that they had to follow, and if they did all of those things right, they were good. What Jesus, what John the Baptist ushered in, and then Jesus and obviously uh, his disciples afterwards said, no, you cannot meet that standard no matter how hard you try. That, that's not good enough. You're never going to meet it. It has to be a circumcision of the heart. It has to be a faith in Jesus. It has to be praise from God, not from men. As we finish the passage here, we see this uh, repent and see the salvation of God. Repent and see the salvation of God. Now, uh, as we get into the passage next week, we're going to talk much more about repentance. John gets uh, pretty direct here. Uh, but for today, I just want to consider a repentance inside this quote from Isaiah 40. Now, in this original context, Isaiah 40, this is verses 3 through 5 that's being quoted. Uh, this refers to uh, the return from exile in Babylon. So that time frame that we studied in Ezra and Nehemiah. The, the physical way, the road, that journey was a rough one. Those pictures that I showed you, oh, that extends even further to the east where Babylon would be. Long distance, very uh, terrible travel. You see the topography there and what it would have been like to go through those things. And so there is a very uh, physical sense in which this means that the road is going to be a difficult one back. And then there's also what we would call a, a poetical one or, or an analogy or a metaphor here. This also applies 
beyond the physical, and it applies uh, to the people directly as well. You see, the people would have been challenged during this time of exile, and now they were returning home. And God had promised all along that he was going to make their paths straight, that he was going to make their paths smooth. And so this would serve for you and I in an application standpoint as an analogy sort of of this repentance that John is preaching. Uh, if you don't know, re- repentance means to change one's mind, but it's, it's, it's much bigger than that. It's about changing your direction. So it's saying, if I'm going this way, and whatever sinful action or whatever, it means to literally do an about face, which I used to be able to do. I can't do that anymore. I need to do drill. And turn and go, the other way. That's what repentance means. It doesn't mean, oh, I shouldn't do that, or oh, that's not good for me. It's a a literal turning from that thing and going in the other way. Other places in the New Testament would tell us to flee from it, right? And so the picture here is about, uh, it's an extension from the physical, but also for us, uh, for them, uh, about a sinful heart and how repentance brings uh, light to the deep and the dark, those valleys, right? Uh, Dark things of the heart uh, that's pictured by those ravines. It's talking uh, metaphorically about the humbling of our pride, letting those things go, and God smoothing those things out. For us, We've been in a place like that at some point in our faith life. That might be a recent thing for you. That might be a long time ago thing for you. That might have come before you came to faith. That might have come sometime during your time of faith. that God would make our paths, every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low, the crooked will be made straight and the rough roads smooth. Who's doing the work there? God's doing the work, right? And what's the requirement on our end? Repent, right? What we're doing is acknowledging that we're in the ravine. What we're doing is we're acknowledging that we're in the darkness. What we're doing is recognizing and acknowledging that this isn't working. And beyond that, beyond just the recognition of it, is the about face and the turning from it. As we do those things, God makes this path straight. He fills in these ravines. He's doing that. This is what John is calling the people to. This is what Isaiah was calling the people to as they returned from exile to stay right and true with God, to repent of their wrongdoing, to not fall back into the traps that got them there uh, to begin with. And I think that's something that that we should uh, consider uh, as uh, we sit here today What are those paths that stand in our way? 
Maybe you're a believer, maybe you're not, but you're caught somewhere in that valley, somewhere in that ravine, somewhere in that wilderness. Darkness, shame, you don't know what's what, which way to turn, which way's up, down, or otherwise. You don't have food, you don't have nourishment, you don't have light. What this passage tells us, what John's going to tell us as we go into next week is to repent and call on the Lord, and he will make our paths straight. And our salvation, our saving through that period, comes from God. If that's been something that you've experienced in your faith life, and today when we take communion, uh, the first thing I would encourage you to do is to thank the Lord for that that you've been brought out of that darkness, that you've been brought out of that ravine. If you're someone that's struggling with that, or you have a family member or a friend or a coworker that's struggling with that, pray for them. Pray for them that they would recognize that they're in that pit, that the things that they're doing, like the, the Jews of the Old Testament, doesn't measure up. That the one that they need to call on is the Lord. That's the only one that they can call on and repent and make him Lord of their life and he will make their paths straight. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again thankful for your word. Are we thankful for the challenge that it is as we read and study and ask questions, Lord, and, and discern uh, your will and what you'd have us gain by reading it. God, we thank you for a, a story like this where it paints a picture that each and every one of us have been in uh, at some point in life or maybe that we're in now, Lord, that we're in that a period of darkness where it's nowhere to turn, God. We thank you for you and the light that you bring while we're there and that you alone are our way through. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be sure to stay up to date with the latest information at lscc.tv. While you're there, click on Connect to find a way to get more involved at LSCC or learn about how to put your talents to work in one of our ministries. If you've been blessed by this podcast and call LSCC home, consider supporting LSCC financially by going to lscc.tv slash give. Big or small, every gift helps us in our mission to love God, love others, and be the church in our mission field, near and far. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you back next week.